begin our reading in verse 18. I would like to give you some context first. In the last chapter of Isaiah, our God, through the prophet, prophesies of this great change of dispensation. Um, if you scan with your eyes down in verse 3, there'll be a time when he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. The time of animal sacrifice is coming to an end, the prophet tells us. And the rebellious Jewish people will come under judgment, says the prophet. Verse 4, I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes. But he announces a time when there will be a new people of God. In verse 7, before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in a day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth children. And we have this signal of this great miracle of the beginning of the church age and the missions age. I won't uh, point you to any more verses in this last part. We will refer to a couple of others, but let's read from verse 18 on the part that concerns us this morning. The Lord God says, For I know their works and their thoughts, that is, those of the Jews who will come under judgment, and the time is coming, says the Lord God, to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, undoubtedly a reference to the Lord Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. And from them, that is from the, the Jewish people that fell mostly under judgment, but not totally, for from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they, the survivors, shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses, and in chariots, and in litters, and on mules, and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them, some of the men of the nations, also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. A very Imagery to show that uh, the Gentile believers will even take the highest functions in the church of God. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. We have this picture of heaven, the finality, from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And 
They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. When we hear our Lord speak in such ways, we immediately sense our smallness, don't we? Uh, we are before something that its sweep is so great and so grand and so worldwide that we need to immediately take our place and be put in our place. God prophesies and tells us of a time that we're in for this gathering, this time of gathering goes from our Lord's crucifixion and resurrection until now and until the end of the age. But missions is not something we can put in our pocket and, and uh, sort of master. It's, it's so immense. It's divine. It's other. And uh, God brings us into the wide, powerful sweep of his eternal plans. And he says, I will, and I will, and I'll do this, and they will bring your brothers. And all of this puts us in Quite, uh, quite a stir, doesn't it? And it makes us want to ask all sorts of questions, like Dave in Dave's message this morning. What, what is this, Lord? And 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 why? Why does it happen this way? How? How could this be? How could this really take place? And where is it all going to? And so. Uh, we will just ask these simple questions, and I hope to be uh, brief this morning. Uh, a very simple challenge that uh, I feel led to bring to you about uh, missions uh, from this passage. First of all, the question, what? What is missions all about? For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. The time of missions in which we're in, missions is a time, first of all. It's not something that's always been happening in God's plan. But the time has come, and we're in that time. And it is, says the Lord God, the time of God's own gathering. And this says something to us immense about who our God is. He is a gathering God. If we're in Christ today, it's because he's gone out. We remember him on those hills above Jerusalem. How many times I would have gathered. And our Lord says, if I am lifted up, I will draw. This is the grace of our God. And all over the world, and we've heard it, and our hearts have been stirred this week and again this morning to see all over Kenya and Italy and Serbia and all of these places, our God is on the move. And he is on the move gathering men and women for all nations to see his wonderful glory and to be gathered into this eternity, Sabbath to Sabbath, new moon to new moon, to worship the Lord God and to know him. It's a time of gathering, but it's a time of revelation. 
you saw in verse 18 that for those who are coming to Christ during this time of gathering, he says that they shall come and see my glory. But interestingly enough, it's also a time of revelation for us who are doing this work of missions, and we must catch hold on to this. Our great hope, in a sense, in missions is not just conversions. Our great hope is to see in the gathering, this worldwide and century upon century gathering, is to see a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to see Jesus manifest himself in this gathering as no man saw ever before this time. You know, you know this man, perhaps he's your boss, and uh, you've gotten to know him just a little bit, just in this limited context of, um, of work. And then one day, he, uh, he gives a great feast. And he invites all sorts of people. Kingdom was like a feast. A man once gave a banquet and invited many and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. And you know the rest of the parable. But the master said to his servant at one point, because some would not come, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And you come to know your boss in a new way. You come to know his heart you, you think, I knew nothing about him until now. And what we see in chapter 66 and verse 12 and 14, look at verse 12 with me. Thus says the Lord, he's speaking of this time, I will extend peace to her to Zion like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And then verse 14, you shall see, you shall see these things and your heart shall rejoice. And, you know, three years ago when I, when I came, uh, I have to say that when I saw all these missionary reports, my heart was stirred as it hadn't been for years. And stirred to see the greatness of God in what he's doing in the world. And I came back hungry uh, this time uh, for more missionary reports. You shall see this and your heart shall rejoice. It is a wonderful time, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that we live in and that we can have these reports and that we can gain this view of our Lord. If I am lifted up, I will draw. It's also a time of, this time of gathering, and I'm talking about the what still. It's a time of gathering, but this time of gathering is a time of revelation for us. It's wonderful, and it's a time of culmination. We know that because the Bible most often speaks about missions in the terms of harvest. And you and I know that harvest is a culmination time in the agricultural year, isn't it? And what does that mean, a time of culmination? It simply means that everything that went before was just preparation. <laughs> that this, when it comes to harvest time, this is it. And it's important for you and I to teach our people and our churches and may the lesson sink into their hearts 
that this time of worldwide gathering, this is it. Jesus said that um, in Luke uh, 24, after his resurrection, he spoke to the disciples and he said, speaking of all the Old Testament, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, this is, this, thus it was written in the Old Testament that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the Old Testament didn't only talk about Christ it being lifted up, but Christ gathering. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And so this is the time that all the Old Testament and all the prophets and all the centuries were announcing and looking for, and it was just preparing, and then here we are. We're in this culmination. Well, what does this mean to us? This means that nothing in the church life can be what this time is about except the gathering. Now, I understand that in our churches, we're about worship. We're about body life. We're about sanctification. But in all of that, we must never forget that Jesus said to the apostles and to all the church through the apostles at his resurrection, he said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, and he breathed on them. That means our identity is, as people like to say it today, missional. When we worship, when we have body life, we, all of this is part of our identity as the sent church who is gathering. And in fact, you know why we're gathering? Because you and I and all of our churches, our worship is not enough worship. If you're serious about worship, you better get serious about gathering because our God is going to have people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and nothing less would be worthy worship. It's too small a thing that you should be the Messiah to lift up the tribes of Judah. I will make your name great so that my salvation comes to the end of the earth. Robert Jaffrey was one of two men that A.W. Tozer read, wrote a biography about. It's called Let My People Go. <laughs> Jeffrey was a missionary. He was the director of the Christian and Missionary Alliance missions in, in, uh, in South, Southeast Asia. He was an amazing man. When World War II began, the Japanese swept into uh, the area where he and a group of the Alliance missionaries were and took over the island that they were upon and made the whole island with the hundreds of people into one big Japanese concentration camp. Now, if you've read anything about World War II, you know that the American soldiers prayed, if I'm going to be taken captive and taken to a, to a concentration camp, oh God, may it be a German concentration camp, not Japanese. Because of the particular brutality. And this brutality hit these people eventually also. 
But at the beginning, there was some relative calm and um, some little freedom of movement. And Jaffrey himself was able to stay for a short time in the house where he lived before the Japanese swept in. He was, served, he was under supervision, but, but he was there. He died in the concentration camp eventually. But one day, one of the younger missionary ladies came into the home where he was, and this is what she says. She said, there set before me sat the old man dreaming his dreams. His eyes were closed, but I knew he wasn't sleeping. I knew that by faith, he and his Lord were moving down the great chain of islands known as the Netherlands East Indies. Seeing my, sensing my presence, Dr. Jaffrey looked up and smiled, the smile of one who had had sweet communion with the Lord. I looked down at the very familiar atlas because they used to call Jaffrey a man of many maps. He was always looking at maps, maps of faraway people who hadn't been reached with the gospel. And so she says, I looked down at the very familiar atlas. Had we not traced the rapid advance of the Japanese on its pages? What other places had fallen under their dominion since that fateful day when the island of Celebes had been overrun? His mind was full of warfare too, but not the same warfare that dominated my thoughts. You see, her husband had been shifted off already to a worse concentration camp, so she was all alone. He would die within about six months, the husband. They'd been married for a year. But Jaffrey was not thinking about the same warfare. I knelt beside the chair and listened. <laughs> listened to his dream. Sorry. <clears throat> Lassie, this is our task. These are the areas we must enter when the war is over. When the war is over, it was but beginning. How much more of its fears and anxieties, separations and grim tales of death, death must we experience before it was over? They're in a concentration camp. I suddenly saw Dr. Jeffrey as I had not seen him before. Old enough to dream dreams, young enough to see visions. To Dr. Jeffrey, our experiences in the war, in the concentration camp, were but passing events that never, never altered God's program of reaching the unreached. The time of gathering is the culminating time. Everything else is a footnote. With steady hand, he traced upon the map our coming campaign, the Natuna and Amambas Islands, Sumatra, the Punans of Borneo's hinterland, Bali, for, firmly held in the grip of the enemy, would be freed. He paused to give praise for spiritual battles already won in some of the smaller islands, and then he moved on to Misul, the Isle of Demons, the Bird's Head of New Guinea, the Whistle Lakes area, the Zwart, and the Memberano River Valleys. And at last his finger came to rest 
over the grand valley of the Balaam. This, Lassie, is our task. Listen, do you hear it? Jeffrey says to her. The sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. This is the noise of the marching army of young men and women whom God is preparing for the day of spiritual battle, battle and occupation of these areas. This is the time of gathering. Number two, that's what, why? Why is there this time of God's worldwide gathering of the nations to himself to see his glory? Because they don't. And because they don't, by the most wicked sinfulness, how could there be such a glory? What happens to a people who's been shown such a glory as that of the living God, showed to Israel, and yet Israel turns away from it? And so in Isaiah 66, dear people, we have this context of judgment which surrounds all around this time of gathering. Would you just look just for a moment with me, and I'll tell you why I want to point this out to you. First of all, in verse 3. Well, let, me, let me go on to verse 15, 15 to 17 to go quicker. Speaking of Israel coming unto the judgment as the, as the dispensation changes, God says, For behold, the Lord God will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. The all flesh, according to many commentators, is, is Israel. It reminds us of Jesus' word. He says that the... Uh, the distress shall be so great in, in 70 A.D. when judgment comes upon Ju Judea that if it were not for the Lord cutting short, then all flesh would be destroyed. And then in the last verse of our text, in verse 24, we see the picture of heaven, but we see this image. <laughs> and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Those who are rescued still must remember from what they were rescued. Now, what, why am I talking to you about a judgment on Israel when we're talking about missions? Well, the reason... We find it in verse 19 when the first missionaries are described. It is this judgment that defines the identity of worldwide gatherers. Notice verse 19. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors. Survivors of this great cataclysm that falls from the living and holy God upon a people that will not see his glory what are missionaries? They are survivors that should have been swept along with the rest. And so Paul says, you must understand I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. 
and my life as a model for all those who would, uh, who would trust in Jesus Christ. Now, we're not people who've been delivered out of the Jewish judgment, are we? But I want to submit to you that this is exactly the position and exactly the mentality that we must have if we're to understand missions and pursue it in a godly way. The only way that I think I can get it across to you is this way. I'm going to draw some help from, from Jeremiah and just ask this, this simple question, and then we'll move to point three. What happens if we lose the perspective that missions is gathering men, God-gathering men, from impending divine and eternal judgment? Now, if we had enough time, we could say, well, if we forget that, then we're going to go out and preach a therapeutic gospel. Come to Jesus because he'll give you more peace. No, no. Flee the wrath of God to come escape for your life. This is our message. But I want to point to something a little bit different. And I want to use Baruch in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 45. I'm simply going to read you two verses and explain what I mean. And we're trying to answer this question. What happens if we fail to see the world we're in, the, the impending judgment, why there is this gathering, why we're doing it? Now, look at Baruch and how he forgets. You remember he was the scribe of Jeremiah, and for some reason his heart was in a bad place. And here's what we read. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, Baruch said, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest, a complainer. Thus you, you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, he's talking about this judgment coming already in Jer Jeremiah's day, coming upon Israel, God's own people. Thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. And what I planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not, for behold, I am bringing disaster on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places that you go. Be, get it, be glad you're going to get away with your skin, Baruch. Don't you understand what's happening? I am rooting up what I have planted. My very own people. I am coming down, raining down with judgment and destruction upon those whom I have loved and called by my own name. Do you realize what we're in the midst of? Do you realize what's happening with God? When we see that creation that God has made, that our sin has called for God to uproot and destroy that which he has made. And he says to us, do you seek great things? Are you complaining? Let's be glad we've, we're survivors. God's given us the reward of our lives from place to place where we go. 
And this makes us face the task of missions in a different way, doesn't it? We have to see God's perspective of what, I want to say, what's happening to him as he has to break down that which he has planted. When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, I like the repetition in the Negro spiritual. When I was sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down beneath God's awful frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. And we must never forget it. And never forget what's happening in God's perspective. Let's go on to the third point. How? What? Why? How? How does God accomplish this worldwide gathering of the nations to himself by the church? And we go back to our text and we read this in verse 19. Notice this. And I will set a sign among them, undoubtedly the sign of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I am lifted up, I will draw them into myself. And from them, from the Jewish people, I will send, I will send. I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Paul, Lud, etc. And so the way that God accomplishes this gathering is sending. God is a sending God because he is a loving God. Did you ever notice this fact in 1 John chapter 4? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. A loving God is a sending God. And Jesus even says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send out workers. But the word send is the same word used to speak of casting out demons. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he will expulse out workers because that's what he wants you to ask. He's a sending God. It's amazing. But we see that all of this gathering hangs upon the church becoming senders. We've heard Romans 10 quoted. How will they call upon him? They've not heard. How will they call upon him, excuse me, if they've not believed? How will they believe if they've not heard? How will they hear without someone preaching? And then it doesn't say, how will they preach if they don't go? It says, how will they preach if they are not sent? And so the responsibility comes to rest on the human side squarely not upon the missionary, no, but upon local churches. How will they preach there if you do not send them here? And that means cultivating an atmosphere of missions so that men hear the call, doesn't it? And can be sent. But in our sending, we must keep to God's priority. And that we see in this verse 19 when he says, I will send survivors to the nations. Now listen to this. To Tarshish, Paul, Lud who draw the bow, Tubal, and Javan. Tarshish, Spain, Paul, and Lud, a southern location, difficult to locate. Tubal, somewhere in the far north. Javan, Greece. 
the islands representing Earth's remotest bounds. Now, these places are, are given mostly because we don't know them. <laughs> and, and God is giving us an impression. And he's saying, I'm sending, I'm going to be sending and gathering to places you haven't even heard of. And when I look at a map and I look at the islands sometimes, I look at the South Sea Islands and I go, how did people even get there to live? And God's naming places like that. And he says, that's where my heart's at. I'm sending and I'm going to send through you. Come with me to William Carey's little home. It's a little home. It's about 1785. It's several years before he leaves. There's not much there. There's a stool. There's a Bible and a couple of books. There's, a, there's this cobbler's tools. And then there's this queer-looking map on the wall. It's made of leather and brown paper, and it's made by his own hands. And the map is on the wall because the map was already in Carrie's heart. Because Carrie believed this. God so loved the world, go ye into all the world. The map is on the wall. The map is hanging right in his heart. And the interesting thing is whenever we see this great gathering mentioned in Scripture and missions, it's very geographically dense. God is always talking about places, islands, cities, regions, peoples, countries, Paul, Tarsius, Javan, these guys who pull the bow because you're going to go to real places and face real dangers. And if we're going to become sending churches, we must become map-minded churches in the Reformed Baptist Network. And I know that some of you already are. I'm just trying to push you a little bit in that, more in that direction. What that means is that we have a network of churches where the children eventually think that all children in churches know of the Sikh people in the Punjab region of India or the Fulani in West Africa. The children just grow up watching National Geographic documentaries in the church building <laughs> because we want to learn about people. And that's when we start seeing people sent out. I want to give you a practical challenge in four parts. Part number one, find a place in your church life where regular, port, regular reports can be given all the time about peoples and nations and worldwide gathering. Some place where it's always there. It might be the prayer meeting. It might be other times. Uh, you might have special gatherings. You might have a special missions meeting. But fine, we know the way we do it in our little tiny church in, in, in France. But find a place or a couple of places where this is always happening. Number two, find someone in your church, one or two people, who will use two things, Operation World and the Joshua Project website with its wonderful information so well done. Such beautiful images and maps and, 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 and photos. 
Find someone who will just camp down and get to know these things and who will be responsible to use them to bring before your church these concrete peoples and, and needs so that you know, well, the, 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 bit, the most needy place in the world is where? Well, of course, you know that it's central and in, in northwest India where a third of the unreached people in the world live in that one country. Number three, adopt in your church an unreached people group. Now, we're almost 40 churches now. Can you imagine if next year there were 40 unreached people groups who were adopted? Now, you can do this. It's a project through the Joshua Project website. You can adopt. You can actually officially adopt an unreached people. And my challenge is to you that our churches would be churches that all have their unreached people where no one's gone, and for 10 years you storm the gates of hell, and you pray, God, send out workers to this people, to this people, to this people. And over 10 years, the Holy Spirit causes this people to grow upon your hearts and the hearts of your, your church. And you've just embraced them, and you've held them before God for 10 years. And we'll see what happens, and we'll all talk about it. And the fourth prong would be to commit before the Lord to pray earnestly and regularly in your local church that God would send someone from your church to a little-reached people like the north of, India, of Italy or, or to somewhere in uh, India, but that you would pray that God would send someone out from your church a new missionary in the next three to six years. I'm just throwing out numbers, change them. It doesn't really matter. But what I'm challenging you to do is say, Lord, we are senders. All of you are involved. Make us more senders because this is the time of gathering and it means it's the time of sending. I got it. I've wanted to get an intern uh, from the Belgian Bible Institute where I teach, and there's a young man there that is so promising it's not even funny. Um, and I wrote the director and I said, what's happening with Benjamin? Um, could, you, could you give me an intern and what about Benjamin? So he wrote me back and he said, look, I, I spoke to Benjamin recently, and um, I, I've come to realize that he's... His heart is set despite all the opportunities open to him. In the French-speaking French -speaking Europe, his heart is set on going to an unreached people. And he said, he said in his email, my, the director, he said, uh, I've made this a subject of prayer. And I could sense the, the, the fight in his heart. And I understand such a gifted and godly young man for us to lose him when we're needy here. But I wrote him back and I said, James, this bravo to the Institute, bravo, bravo to his parents, bravo to every, everyone who's had an influence in Benjamin's life because I know no French person ever in the last 27 years. I remember at no time of hearing of a French Christian going to an unreached people. And I said, James, this is the jewel in the crown of your Institute. Let no one dissuade him. And we must, we must have this, uh, this priority that is God's priority. 
that we're thinking and loving and embracing these, uh, these unreached peoples. I was going to say something under this question of, of, um, of how about declaring his glory. I'm just going to summarize before we go on to the last point. We read when God says to us that he's gathering, he says that he'll send survivors to the nations. And in verse 19, the latter part, they shall declare my glory among the nations. And certainly this is our task. And you know it well enough that we're going out and so much. I remember Samuel Rutherford saying, oh, that, that I could have angels' tongues to make Jesus market sweet. To make him market sweet to the nations. To, and we, one, of the, one of our great problems is we, we go out to all of these people and we've seen something of his glory and we know we can't tell it. We can't tell it. We can't tell fully what we've seen, not in words. But we take the words of Scripture and we pray, Oh, Holy Spirit, make them see what you've made me see through your word of the wondrous grace and glory of God seen only in the face of the dying and risen Savior. I will say this one thing. The Moravians were the first of the modern missionaries. Before Carey, they had 170 missionaries out on the field by the time Carey had been in India 10 years. Some of them sold themselves as slaves to reach the slaves of the West Indies. But when they first went out, they made a mistake. The first of their missionaries were going to places like Greenland, and they were preaching to the people in a sort of abstract theological way and trying to prove the existence, the existence of God through abstract theological reasoning. And they weren't seeing any converts. And Zinzendorf, the leader, wrote to them and said, tell them the story of Jesus. And they began to do that. And the first time that one of the Greenland missionaries did that, a native of Greenland, whose name was Karjanak, heard the story of Jesus, and he came forward, and he said, What is that? Tell me that again. And they began to see fruit. And so as we come, become sending churches, we must reiterate again and again to those we send out that this is our task. I'm not against apologetics, but I'm saying that the power of the gospel is in the face of Jesus Christ, where we see the glory of God. Well, let's end by talking about where is this all going. Well, ending the book of Isaiah, we read that God says in verse 20, and they shall bring all your brothers, talking about these missionaries, these survivors as it goes out, God says, and they shall bring all your brothers. I, I just love this part, that now the Jews are going out, and the ones they're bringing back from the Gentile nations are their brothers. And so we're going out as survivors, and it's like we're, we've, we've come out of a burning building, but we still got family in there. <laughs> and we're going back in, and we're, bring the brothers, bring the brothers. And so we're bringing them all out. And we read a strange thing here. Well, 
and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations, and they shall bring them on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. What does that mean? <laughs> that means nothing's going to stop these guys from getting in. It's an image, a wonderful image of God the gatherer, the sovereign gatherer. And in all of these places in the world, these wonderful people that we're seeing in, in these reports, they will be brought in. The resources will be there, and they'll be presented to God as a clean and acceptable offering. And our churches do need to, to often get this, this wonderful vision that we are involved in such a magnificently divine and successful enterprise um, that they, they will be brought in. But the end of it all is not there. That's just the bringing. Because he says, For as the new moon, the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, the new heavens and the new earth, so eternalness and so glorious, as they shall remain before me, so shall your offspring and your name remain. This new church, these gathered in. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me forever. Whenever I think of missions and pray for missions, I think of heaven. And I intentionally try to do this every time I pray. And I'm often using Jonathan Edwards' word for heaven. He called it a world of love. And in my prayers for the French people who are getting interested in the gospel, I'm all, 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 most often praying this way, Oh, Lord, would you bring them to yourself and into your eternal world of love? And I'm thinking of that world. In my heart, myself, I'm grasping at it. And I'm thinking, this is the, this is the where. This is why I'm gathering. It's not to, make, to, to be a successful missionary. It's not to make more Reformed Baptist churches. I've set my heart's compass on heaven. Far beyond the Jordan River. Oh, the glories there, like a jewel so rare, joined forevermore will be on heaven's shore. And this is it, brothers and sisters, isn't it? And we understand why the Lord takes us all the way there with that vision all on our knees, and all flesh shall come and worship before me and before the slain Lamb of God. Isn't it a wonderful thing we're doing? What could be more wonderful? May God help us to remember that this is the ultimate time. This is the gathering time. Draw us up into your heart, O oh God, into the, to the breadth of it. Let us not be parochial. That's an anti-God spirit. God is not limited in parochial. And may we please become map-minded, geographically preoccupied senders. Amen.